Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And yes, it's true. Today we're going to be talking about the Super Mario Brothers movie. No, no, no. Not the one currently in theaters as we record this with uh, Jack Black as the voice of Bowser. The one currently on $4 DVDs with Dennis Hopper as not only the voice, but the body and the soul of Bowser. Though when I first uh, thought about this, I, I was calling him Bowser. Is this before the character was called Bowser in the Mario verse? In this movie, he's just Koopa. What, um, what, how, how did that change happen? I think Lance Hendrickson is King Bowser in this. Uh, oh, I believe okay. that's that's how he's credited, um, which I don't know why they made this choice, because <laughs> I feel like he's more of Dennis Hopper is totally playing some version of Bowser in this. Maybe they just thought like Koopa sounded better. I don't know. Anyway, yes, we are, of course, talking about the live action Super Mario Brothers movie from 1993. And I'm pretty sure this one was a parents' night out movie for me. So I was a kid. Uh, I, I think I had a babysitter, had a had a kid cuisine frozen meal for dinner, maybe some oatmeal cookies afterwards, fresh rental from the video store. And what was that rental? It was a VHS tape of Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw this as a, as a kid. I didn't see it until I was an adult. But I remember seeing the promotional materials for it, perhaps the trailer, 
you know, maybe an article in, or, or at least a screen uh, shot in uh, Time magazine or something. And I remember thinking, well, this is a bold choice for adapting the Mario Brothers video game. But I also was too young to question it. I was like, yes, mm-hmm. this is the way. This is, what, this is what we're doing. This is the cinematic Mario Brothers. When you're a kid, you know, this has come up many times on the show before. When you're a kid, you don't really have that sense of this is not a way that movies are supposed to be. If a movie exists, it's like, yeah, that's what movies are like. That, that, that's legitimate. I mean, that's the way I was. My son is not this way. <laughs> like, he's a Pokemon fan. And mm-hmm. I've watched some Pokemon with him. Some of it is some weird stuff. But we watched um, Pokemon Detective Pikachu together. And we had a great time watching it. I thought it was, uh, as I've mentioned on the show before, I thought it was uh, substantially good, especially considering it is also essentially a video game adaptation. But he refuses to acknowledge it now. He's like, no, the, the, the Pokemons don't look right. They look, and he has all these critiques about it. And I'm just kind of like, well, you're a little young to understand this, but you know, you're going to have to find that middle ground with other people and realize that Pokemon Detective Pikachu is like the bridge that will bring other people in, that will allow you to connect with other people outside of like the Pokemon fandom. Well, I haven't seen that one, but we'll have to compare our experiences in a minute because I think we cannot cover the Super Mario Brothers movie without talking a little bit more generally about the concept of video game to movie adaptations. But I want to hold off on that for a second because the first thing I have to say is now that I have gone back and reviewed the evidence, I can say without a doubt, in my opinion, this is one of the weirdest movies we have covered on the show and one of the weirdest movies I have ever seen. <laughs> I am truly at a loss for words uh, to express how bizarre Super Mario Brothers is, both qualitatively and quantitatively. There is a dank, manic luminosity to the proceedings. It is a dream dreamed by a slime mold who is also a corporate lawyer. It is a warm garbage bag leaking black liquid onto your bed. But the garbage bag and the liquid are made of Lawnmower Man-style CGI, and the garbage bag is also poochy. (laughs) I don't know where you fall on this. Obviously, there are different ways that movies can be weird, but I... I struggle to think of a movie we've covered on our show about weird movies that is as weird as this one. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all weird in different ways, and it can be hard to, to, uh, to, to compare them. Um, the, the way I kept thinking about this film uh, is to think of it in terms of evolution. Uh, and misnomers about evolution, as we'll discuss, come up just throughout the film. Uh, so that, 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 that'll be uh, something we'll discuss in a bit. But, you know, it's, it's easy to think about bad films, weird films, miscalibrated films as being the result of a whole bunch of bad decisions. Um, but it's not it's not really necessarily the case. Uh, like in this, this movie is the result of a number of bad decisions, but also a lot of, of solid or even great decisions. Um, but in the same way that evolution is a linear progression, but not one of just like constant, quote unquote, improvement necessarily. It's not like an ascension towards heaven. Um, the, the evolution of a film from, uh, you know, conception and pre-production to final form to the, the version that goes into theaters or on VHS and DVDs, um, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, that, that what you're going to get at the end is, is going to be great. Uh, like in this case, you can almost think of it as sort of like terminal evolution. Uh, evolution can produce a, a morphological form, a way of life uh, that is very niche, 
but is also ultimately doomed to extinction because of how niche it is. And that's kind of what we have here, a movie that was created to fill a particular niche and one that may not actually exist and, as it turned out, was also doomed. The creative elements in this movie do not feel like they were selected through the process of a single cohesive vision of what the movie should be. Instead, it kind of feels like a, a catamary domacy of mm-hmm. creative elements. So it's just rolling up chairs and donuts and nails and people, and they're all in this ball together in the end. Yeah, there's not, it's not even like sometimes with films, there's this feeling of like a push and pull, like this side wanted a comedy, this side wanted a horror movie, and you have something, you know, mismanaged in between, or you have just multiple genres kind of hit in the film. We've talked about that a bit, but yeah, this one, I guess the, the best way I can think about it is you take the source material here, the Super Mario Brothers video games uh, that existed up until this point. And to adapt them into a live action film, you're going to have to make some bold choices. And they definitely made some bold choices. Um, it just ultimately didn't take on a form that most of us can um, can really connect with. OK, well, this sounds like the bridge to to talking about the general concept of video game to movie adaptation, something that actually happens a lot now. But this was once a completely new thing. Uh, of course, people have long been adapting text-based literature into movies. So plays, short stories, novels, those all become movies. Uh, you know, those kinds of adaptations have been made for more than a century. And while there are always interesting choices and changes that take place when adapting a story from one medium to another, I think it's safe to say that adapting a novel or especially adapting a play to the screen is often a fairly natural transition, and it can depend on on the novel itself. But presumably there's a narrative of some sort, and that can be embodied by actors and set designers and so forth and captured on film. Now, especially for more recent video games, the transition is also fairly natural, and I think that's because over time, a lot of uh, big-budget video games have become more cinematic in style and structure. Like big video games now often have stories and characters and plot structure almost exactly like a movie, except you play as one of the characters instead of just watching. But Super Mario Brothers in the early 90s was a a, a totally different type of media. This is a video game where you play as a little cluster of pixels, a little man in overalls with a mustache and a hat, and you run from left to right, and you jump on fanged mushroom monsters and malicious turtles, and you go down sewer pipes into castles. The actual story is very thin, so I, I'm really just riveted, actually, by the idea of what it must have felt like when this was a new thing to do. Nobody had ever really adapted a video game to a movie, a feature-length movie before, So, like, how do you do it? How do you turn that little man running across the screen and jumping on things into a 90-minute story? If I try to go back in a time machine, imagine it's the early 90s and I've been given this as a writing project, I really do not know what I would have thought about it. Like, where to start? What do you do? Yeah, yeah, this is interesting. I I like how you, you point out just like the, the 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 initial novelty of this and i i was reading actually michael weldon's uh, writings on this published in uh, 1996 so 3 years after this came out uh, this film came out in the psychotronic video guide and he points out a lot about the film that that we'll be pointing out you know i think we we have shared the same general opinion but 
Um, he includes the line, it didn't stop more movies based on video games, which to us with our modern perspective, like it, I mean, it, we can't imagine them having stopped, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, at the, that kind of, I think for me sums up that at the time, like this was a, this was a novel idea and they were adapting things that didn't scream for adaptation because you look at something like Silent Hill, Silent Hill has, um, yeah, there, there are gameplay innovations there and, and a lot of technical uh, advancements. But you have things like Pyramid Head, you know, things with a definite design um, quality to them, a definite setting. And even with Silent Hill, you, have, you sort of have a story there, right? But, yeah. um, but, you know, things you can latch on to and be like, yes, let's make a Pyramid Head movie. But with Mario... The, the true innovations are all deeply technical. They're all deeply um, embedded in, in game design. Like that's where Super Mario was so innovative. And the reason it was so successful is it was doing things that had not been done before. Well, you notice a lot of modern video games have a difficulty setting called story mode for people mm-hmm. who are not very interested in gameplay mechanics. They just want to experience it as a story like a movie. That type of mode would make no sense whatsoever for the original Mario games. There isn't a story like the story is the gameplay. It's just the gameplay. Oh, man, I wish we had have, we would have had story mode back in the day. I remember I had Castlevania for NES. I didn't have Mario. Castlevania was always too hard for me. I never made it very far through that game. I would have loved to have had a story mode for that, even though there's you know basically no story or narrative to Castlevania either. To be fair, I may be getting uh, terminology mixed up. Story mode, I think, maybe also just sometimes means like not multiplayer. But you know what I'm talking about. That yeah, difficulty yeah. setting, it's like the easy mode where you are just there. To, you just want to experience the narrative. You don't want to have to fight for it. Yeah, I don't want to get frustrated with it. I just want to ride this out. Okay, there's a second thing that I'd say, at least from my perspective, I have to make clear at the very beginning in order for you to understand what the experience of watching Super Mario Brothers is like. And it's that in a pure visual sense, this is without a doubt one of the ugliest movies we have covered (laughs) on Weird House and one of the ugliest movies I have ever seen. And I don't even think that is an oversight by the filmmakers. Like, I don't think that's unintentional. From what I've read, they were trying to create something that was hideous to look at. It was part of an intended aesthetic uh, that one of the producers, I was reading an article by Karina Longworth from many years ago, uh, sort of a retrospective about the making of this film. And she said that the producers were calling it an aesthetic of new brutalism. (laughs) I don't know what that means. That was their term. And they said it was, you know, it was set to be inspired by by kind of uh, uh, perverse urban settings and and industrialism. Ah, now that's interesting, because uh, as we'll discuss uh, in a bit, uh, I I, I don't really love the music in this film. I feel like the music is outside of one uh, piece from the soundtrack. Uh, very forgettable to bad. But imagine if it had had a heavy industrial soundtrack, because clearly, yeah, that's what the aesthetics are asking for. Uh, Ultimately, not like a traditional score, not even like some cool um, um, uh, funk, but just some straight up like Nurse with Wound or something playing with uh, like a sound of cacophony, get some Einstein's into New Button in there or something. The Mario theme as done by Ministry. Yeah, ministry would have been a great a great pick for the way this film looks. Can you imagine the swans take on on Mario? <laughs> yeah. I would listen to that in a heartbeat. Yeah, and I think that this is this is a great point to make. Yeah, this idea that there are aspects of the film that are pushing in a more 
you know, creative and inventive direction. But at the other hand, this was like, what, a $50 million picture aimed at a mainstream audience and presumably for children. For so kids. there were certain things, yeah, there are certain things that had to be in check, like, like you know, you probably can't go too graphic on melting uh, a dude in this movie, and it's going to end up having a traditional score, uh, no matter how gnarly the visuals are. So historically speaking, uh, no one liked this movie. <laughs> no one seems to have liked working on it. Uh, neither critics nor audiences found much to love about it. It was a, a box office bomb. Um, However, uh, it does seem like maybe the cheese has aged into something more desirable, at least for some segments of the population or at least some individuals. I was reading that Quentin Tarantino defended the film recently on his, uh, he's, I believe he's on a podcast, mm. and, uh, and hosted uh, an enthusiastic showing of it. Now, Tarantino certainly has a love of weird films, uh, though he sometimes makes some really, you know, head-scratching picks for favorites. I seem to recall he loved 2013's Lone Ranger, for example. <laughs> that's a... Um, that's a- uh, I don't know, but yeah, but okay. I well, we too also yeah, have enthusiasm yeah. for out of the way picks, uh, kind of strange movies that nobody else would really uh, think were even worth revisiting. They can't, and you know what? I, I I can't say that I loved or even necessarily liked Super Mario Brothers, but I'm really glad we decided to cover it for the show because I think this movie is uh, maybe not pleasant, but it is fascinating. I think you could write a book length work about this film uh, about how it was made and what it means and i would read that book yeah yeah i think it's important to know especially with, with uh, uh, critics like michael weldon and even you know some some other contemporary reviews is like is when this was new when this was the the latest release like it didn't have this historic place uh you know so i I think even the the critics who um, really gave it a lashing, you know, they would they probably would consider a similar picture uh, in a different light if it were from you know, 30 years ago uh, to their writing. Uh, so uh, yeah, it is. It's a weird film. It's it's an ugly film, but uh, th- there is a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. Now, since it was, of course, ostensibly a film. Uh, mostly for children it had toy tie-ins and you included a photo of those uh, action figures here in the outline just wretched wretched (laughs) toys yeah they remind me they're almost as repulsive as the dick tracy toys uh, (laughs) that i definitely own several of uh they look like they have similar bodies you know Okay, so two of the toys are Mario and Luigi. I get that. One toy is Dennis Hopper as King Koopa. One is one of the movie's Goombas, which Mm -hmm. are nasty looking. But then two of the six pictured here are just, they're just the guys from Night at the Roxbury. They're like uh, Fisher Stevens and the other dude from the movie wearing (laughs) suits to go out to the club. Yeah, like the least marketable in terms of children characters in the film. Uh, meanwhile, the Goomba looks really good. Like the Goomba toy actually does look better than the Goombas in the movie. Agree, 100%. All right, so Joe, what's the, what's the elevator pitch on this one? Well, it's a him, a Mario. <laughs> no, I do, okay, so it's... Uh, Mario and Luigi are, they're struggling plumbers in Brooklyn. They meet Daisy, a paleontologist who happened to have hatched from an egg. Uh, Together, the three of them are sucked into an alternate dimension where people evolved from dinosaurs and everything is gross. And an evil (laughs) Dennis Hopper wants to make our world gross like his. Uh, Can the humans stop him? All right, let's listen to that trailer audio. 
They're brothers. They're plumbers. Oh, no. Mario! Luigi! They're on the trail of a kidnapped princess and a mystical meteorite. It's incredible! That gives anyone who possesses it the power to rule the universe. Get me the rock! Come and get it, lizard breath! Now, they must rescue the princess. And make it safely back. Later, alligator. To our world. Are you all right? Before time runs out. Mario Brothers, this ain't no game. All right. Now, if you're wondering where can I watch 1993 Super Mario Brothers, well, it's pretty much only available as physical media. So go out and get it now on Bare Bones Blu-ray, DVD, Laserdisc, or VHS. We watched it on a DVD that might as well have been a VHS. Oh, yeah, this is, I mean, I'm glad you were you're on it and you uh, you ordered up a couple, a couple of these $3 DVDs for us. But, uh-huh. man, this is one of the most bare bones uh, DVD releases of a major motion picture I've ever seen. The menu for it, uh, like the on-screen menu, looks like one of those template default menus on a burn-your-own DVD uh, yeah. program from like 15 years ago. It might literally have been something like that. And when the menu pops up, it plays the Super Mario theme, like from the game. But I swear they modulated it somehow. So it sounds sad. It literally sounds like the depressed version of the Mario music. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Yeah, like a busted holiday card or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if the Blu-ray received any more love. I tend to doubt it. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think any release for this film, re-release, has, has given it any uh, amount of love. It's been just sort of cast out there like, we we don't want pirates to provide the people who are interested with this film. So, okay, we'll put it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer... Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. 
Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. All right, shall we get into uh, the connections on this one, the people of note? Because there, uh, there are a number of fascinating folks and very talented folks involved in the creation of this monstrosity. So, um, first of all, uh, the director's chairs. We have uh, a pair of directors. Uh, I believe they were husband and wife at the time. Annabelle Jenkel and Rocky Morton, both born in 1955. So, uh, yeah, these two were a couple. They founded Cucumber Studios in the late 1970s, and they specialized in music videos, TV commercials, title sequences, stuff like that. Uh, They worked with a number of notable clients and musical talents, but what really put them on the map was Max Headroom. Ah. Max Headroom debuted in a 57-minute TV film, Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, in 1985. He was played, of course, by the talented Matt Frewer in a cyberpunk origin story. Uh, for this character that I think a lot of us associate with um, later becoming a spokesman for Coke. (laughs) But I thought the whole point of Max Headroom is that he is an evil, soulless, computer-generated representative of an oppressive corporate conglomerate that wants to rule the world with an iron fist. Well, I don't know. I think you might know more about Max Headroom than I do. I, I haven't seen any of these Max Headroom properties aside from like the Coke spots. So all I know is oh. that he's digital and kind of plastic. Yeah, I've never actually seen this TV film or anything, but like I've I've seen clips and I've read about it. That's what I thought it was. It seems to me like it, if like Dick Jones from RoboCop became the the spokesperson for Coke. Yeah, um, I don't know. So maybe we have some Max Headroom uh, fans out there who can set the record straight on this. But Max was a hit. He almost immediately got his own Channel 4 music video presentation show. That got aired on Cinemax in the U.S. The Coke deal, obviously. Uh, Max even had his own TV show on ABC in 1987. And we continue to have various cameos over the years and remains something of, I guess, like an 80s oddball cultural icon. All right, but anyway, back to Jenkel and Morton here. Following Max Headroom, they did a 1988 film titled DOA, starring Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan, Charlotte Rampling, Daniel Stern, and Jane Kaczmarek. Wow. Uh, an, an impressive cast. I have not seen it. It was apparently like a neo-noir um, flick, and it did pretty well critically and commercially, I understand. It's actually a remake of a 1949 film, and Michael Weldon, uh, in his review, stressed that the original is definitely better. Mm-hmm. But then came 1993's Super Mario Brothers, and, you know, there's a lot to unpack here about what didn't work uh, and, uh, you know, what a bomb it was, certainly. And uh, it kind of, I think, caused a pause in both their careers. I I believe Morton continued doing music videos 
uh, we don't see much from him afterwards, either in terms of film or TV credits, at least around 2005, which is also around the time that the couple happened to divorce. I think Morton's work has mostly been in music videos and Jankel has continued to direct, including the 2009 TV movie Skellig the Owl Man, starring Tim Roth and John Sim, and 2018's Tell It to the Bees, starring Billy Boyd and Anna Paquin. Yeah, I think I can say I'm not familiar with it, either of the director's other work, really, apart from what little bit I know about Max Headroom. So, the, you know, I, all I've got to go on here is Super Mario Brothers. I, <laughs> I can't get further into their heads. All right. The writers on this. So uh, there's uh, first of all, there are a pair here. There's uh, there's Terry Runt, I believe it is. I may be mispronouncing that R-U-N-T-E, who lived 1960 through 1994. Uh, along with Parker Bennett, Dates Unknown, they'd previously written 1991's Mystery Date. Um, Bennett was a cartoonist and apparently was in advertising, but that's all I really dug up uh, about their professional careers. The other credited writer is Ed Solomon, born 1960. Solomon is best known for his writing work on, I believe, all the Bill & Ted films from the Bill & Ted franchise, the First Men in Black movie, the Now You See Me films, and also such titles as 92's Mom and Dad Save the World, that 2000 uh, Charlie's Angels movie, and 2021's No Sudden Move. Now, I think one thing to stress, uh, and this will make a lot of sense if you see the movie, is that the script that we ended up with being shot and making the movie is was by no means the first attempt or the first draft to script this thing. I, I don't know. I've read accounts where I lost track of all the different versions. I think there were something like nine different scripts or something. And yeah, uh, it went through all kinds of uh, development hell or I don't know if it's technically development hell. That might be a more specific thing. It went through a very complicated creative process. In fact, I was reading an article in Yahoo Entertainment about one of the screenwriters who did an early uh, draft for the movie. And this is, this article is by John Sand called uh, The Super Mario Brothers Movie Turns 25, How the Infamous Dud Was Inspired by an Oscar-Winning Film. This article <laughs> claims that the first draft of the script, uh, com again, completely different from what was actually filmed, was written by the Oscar-winning screenwriter Barry Morrow, who was one of the two writers behind Rain Man. <laughs> and he was brought on board because of the Rain Man script uh, because of, quote, his talent for writing brothers. Oh, wow. So a few quotes from the article. Uh, Morrow says, my son, who was very small at the time, was Mario crazy. I said I would do it just to get Mario games for my son, probably. <laughs> um, apparently, it was going to be an origin story telling the story of how the Mario brothers became super. Don't they just step on a mushroom? Like, that's the original version, right? Yeah, I think that is. But he, so he says he can't remember all of the details of his script. I've read a few al other allegations about it elsewhere that it, like, had a kind of mythic structure and involved, like, a, a, a great journey or a quest. Uh, but he says it hinged on, quote, a ring getting lost in a drain. And that's what led Mario and Luigi into the plumbing world. Well, I mean, makes sense. You got to start somewhere. Uh-huh. He also says, quote, I didn't even finish the script. I had the last scene I was working on when the courier arrived and said, I've been told to take it, whether you're finished or not. <laughs> Off it went. Wow. That story itself is pretty crazy just in terms of like a pre-internet age. Like there's yeah. no like we need you to email the script now. Email. It's like the courier is at the door. 
Yeah. So he had to hand off the unfinished script. Of course, it was it may have fed into subsequent scripts, which were subsequently revised in many different ways. I've heard that the shooting script that they ended up using, uh, I think the claim I read about, I think this was in the Karina Longworth article uh, in uh, Grantland that I read about this, that script uh, they said by the time they used it had no original pages in it. So, you know, they would have like the color coding of the different <laughs> revision pages and there were no white pages from the first draft left. Wow. Well, if creatively this is a train that eventually goes off the tracks, uh, we have to acknowledge that that train began long ago in a station um, of, of just pure game development. Um, the individual that, uh, that of course, this begins with is Shigeru Miyamoto, born 1952, video game designer, producer, and game director in Nintendo. His work also includes the creation of The Legend of Zelda, Donkey Kong, F-Zero, and Star Fox. Uh, he has been described as the father of modern video games. I don't know a lot about uh, him personally, but uh, yeah, I don't know. How can you argue with that track record? That is an incredible uh, cr creative and technical mind. Yeah. All right, let's get into the cast here. Obviously, the lead is Mario. Mario Mario is his full name and uh, the character's name. And uh, Mario Mario is played by Bob Hoskins, who lived 1942 through 2014. Hoskins was a versatile British actor, uh, probably best known to many out there for his role as Eddie Valiant in 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But of course, he came into that role on the back of a lot of highly regarded work, including 1979's Pennies from Heaven, 1982's The Long Good Friday, playing a gangster, a uh, British gangster opposite Helen Mirren and Paul Freeman, uh, 1984's The Honorary Consul, which was also released under the title Beyond the Limit. Uh, on that, he uh, acted opposite Richard Gere and Michael Caine. And then there's 1987's Mona Lisa playing a criminal, again, opposite Kathy Tyson, Michael Caine, Robbie Coltrane, and Clark Peters. That one was directed by Neil Jordan. So a great actor, maybe best known for his roles out, outside of some of these films, his role as, roles as heavies, you know, as uh, kind of tough guys and gangsters. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, too, amid some obvious paydays. I've seen some, some creepy performances from him and, and also just some, you know, basic uh, authority figure roles. Bob Hoskins was a great actor. Uh, yeah, I love him. Uh, he has quite famously and emphatically insisted that this was the worst thing he ever worked <laughs> on in his entire career and has had uh, just venomous things to say about it in interviews. Uh, but I was reading in that that uh, Grantland article uh, about the other actors who at some point were considering or were considered for the role of Mario. Do you know who these other potential Marios were? Um, I am going to guess uh, Robert De Niro. He's not on the list. He may really? have been in there, but not not here. Okay, no. First one, uh, Karina Longworth says, first one, Dustin Hoffman wanted to be <laughs> Mario. Again, nope. because his kids were Nintendo maniacs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he wanted to impress his kids, apparently, by by being Mario on screen. Uh, but that didn't work out. Uh, I think originally the the game executive, so this may have been the people at Nintendo rather than the movie studio, wanted Danny DeVito I mean, mm, yeah. it seems like a very clear choice there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, DeVito would have been interesting in the role, would have brought a different energy because one thing about Hoskins Mario is that he he looks like he's ready for a brawl, 
a lot in this film. Like, oh, yeah, his, his intensity is a little unnerving at times. He looks like he could kill somebody in an argument about football. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and his character frequently says that he wishes to kill people. Yes. <laughs> so this is a Mario who expresses death, which is constantly. Yeah. Uh, but apparently Danny DeVito uh, ended up not being involved in this because he wanted to concentrate on directing and co-starring in Hoffa. Mm, okay. I think that was starring uh, Jack Nicholson as yeah. Jimmy Hoffa. Okay, next thing after this uh, was that apparently Tom Hanks was considered for the role. This would have been oh, the, no. uh, Tom Hanks right around the time of Forrest Gump, I believe. No, no, no. no. The, 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 Hanks would have been Luigi at best. Mm, yeah. So I don't. I honestly don't even know why I have a strong opinion about this. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Hanks uh, apparently wanted five million for the role, uh, but instead they ended up going with Bob Hoskins. And it's weird because it's like I I can't really fault them for that. It seems like a great choice, but then again, I don't know. Like Hoskins ended up being so hostile about the very idea of this film. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I, one wonders if there had been a different actor in the role, if the whole movie could have taken a different direction. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to say. Now you can't have Mario without Luigi and Luigi Mario is played by John Leguizamo born 1960. I've seen this film singled out as the role that allowed him to rise to fame. And maybe that's the case, but he'd certainly been putting in the work prior to Mario Brothers and and has done a, a great deal since Mario Brothers to cement his legacy as a comedian and an actor uh, with both comedic and dramatic power. Uh, his earliest credit is playing Madonna's boyfriend's friend in the 1984 music video for Borderline, followed by small roles in such films as Die Hard 2 and Regarding Henry. But it's clearly off to the races after Mario Brothers, and the man has, has worked so much that I can't even hit it all like the high points. But just to name a few films of note, there's Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar from 93, uh, the 1996 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, uh, oh, 1997 Spawn, in which he plays the villainous clown character. Yeah. That's that's a role. I know it's it's probably not like up there for like examples of Leguizamo at his best, but like that is a role where the the at times raw energy that he has as an actor um, is is really essential. Like he's wearing God only knows how much makeup in that to become clown, and he's able to like shine through that in a way that feels like impishly comedic and also villainous at the same time. February 10th, 2023 article on comicbook.com features quotes from an interview with John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo is asked, of all the villains he's played in his career, what is his favorite? Leguizamo says, I gotta say clown. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. He says uh, he liked it because of the level of difficulty and because of how much freedom he had, like to to ad lib and get crazy. And so he Mm -hmm. says, quote, I pushed it to the max. Well, it, it absolutely worked. Uh, we may eventually rewatch Spawn for Weird House Cinema. Uh, in many ways, it's not an experience I'm looking forward to, but uh, his performance, actually so, several of the performances would be the main thing I would want to come back for. Mm. 
All right. Uh, and I'll mention some other Leguizamo films in a bit. But another one of note is uh, 2022's The Menu. That's probably one of the more recent ones that I've seen from him. And I thought he was great in that, playing this kind of washed up action actor that I've seen him in interviews say that he kind of patterned this character after Steven Seagal because he worked with him. He had, like many people, he has a Steven Seagal story, uh, many people in the industry. And so he based that character in part on Steven Seagal. Let me guess. Steven Seagal told him that he could read anyone's mind just by shaking their hand. And then Leguizamo shook his hand and Seagal passed out on the floor. (laughs) Something like that. All right. Uh, We mentioned we mentioned our villain already, but we have King Koopa. uh, And this is played by Dennis Hopper, who lived 1936 through 2010. Uh, This is weirdly enough, our first Dennis Hopper movie in our know two plus years of uh, Weird House Cinema, which is kind of a shock because Dennis Hopper is an actor with a long career that experiences multiple spikes and dips and has a lot of weird films in there from different decades. Yeah, he's one of those who, you know, he's done his prestige films, but also he clearly was not above uh, cashing a paycheck, doing some kind of weird sci-fi slop. He did that quite a bit. Yeah. So he came up in TV and the occasional Western during the 1950s. And then in the 60s, uh, you know, things got weird, man. Yeah, he started appearing in things like uh, the 1961 horror film Night Tide. He played a neo-Nazi on the 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone's He's Alive. And certainly there were more TV and Westerns mixed in there. But he also appeared in the 1966 space vampire film Queen of Blood starring John Saxon. In 67, he appeared in the Corman-directed, Jack Nicholson-scripted LSD movie, The Trip, which, uh, which is, is, is certainly uh, amusing. I, I have seen The Trip. Other notable 60s films, of course, include Cool Hand Luke, Hang Em High, ooh, and 1969's Easy Rider, which he also directed and co-wrote the first of nine directorial credits, which also included 1971's The Last Movie. He was in 69's True Grit. In 1979, of course, he played a memorable role as, the, as a deranged photojournalist in Apocalypse Now. And uh, I think his 80s output may be classified by some as a slump, but he still, and during that time period, he gave us a 1981 Stigmata movie titled Reborn. Um, and then, of course, he had a strong 1986 with both The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and Blue Velvet. Wow, yeah, that's a year. Did you notice, Joe, in this movie... The, the many, like, sort of campaign and uh, dictator posters for King uh, Koopa include one where King Koopa has a big chainsaw. No, I didn't see that. Yeah, I didn't notice it till like, the end sequences when they're kind of, like, throw, overthrowing him and tearing the stuff down. But mm-hmm. there's clearly a big chainsaw in one of the posters. One of my favorite uh, sort of understated movie scenes of all time is Dennis Hopper shopping for chainsaws at a chainsaw <laughs> store in TCM2. Yep, yep. I think that that's one of my favorite sequences in that movie as well. All right. Then in the the early 90s, his career experienced another strong villain surge with roles in not only 93's Mario, but also 93's True Romance, who in 94's Speed, which, of course, was pretty huge at the time. He followed it up with 1995's Waterworld. And I guess after that, there's another slump period. Uh, but he still gave us 1996's Basquiat, as, uh, as well as Space Truckers. Um, of note, he was uh, a modern art collector and owned an extensive collection. And I believe he owned some Basquiat uh, uh, paintings. But uh, anyway, the, the rest of his career is, is pretty packed with projects, uh, with some standouts, at least for us, like George Romero's Land of the Dead from 2005, which reunited him with John Leguizamo. 
He plays a similar kind of character in Land of the Dead to his King Koopa character. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a he's sort of a post-apocalyptic rich guy who lives up in a in a, you know, skyscraper above all the poor people in in the zombie land. Yeah, I remember seeing Land of the Dead when it came out and um uh, I remember liking it. Uh but but not like falling in love with it. It's interesting to look at where zombie cinema and zombie TV shows and so forth have gone since that time period. Because I feel like, take for instance, The Walking Dead. Clearly, you know, it it owes a, a huge um, nod to all of Romero's zombie films. But I feel like if you had to compare uh, The Walking Dead film by film, I feel like it has more in common with Land of the Dead and that kind of vision of post-zombie apocalypse society, you know? Mm. Well, Land of the when you think about the the Romero movies in order, so Night of the Living Dead is about the night of the outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, Dawn of the Dead is taking place as civilization is falling apart. Day of the Dead is very interesting because it takes place apparently after civilization has fallen apart, and it has a very small, isolated cast. It's like a group of scientists and military personnel mm-hmm. living alone on a base, and they're not even sure if anybody else is left out in the world. Land of the Dead comes along after that. It's the fourth film, and it sort of opens back up again. It has a social element, and it's like, okay, well, here's what a city looks like in the zombie world. Uh, people have reorganized. There is a social structure now, and this is this is what emerges. Yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. All right, all right. But back to Mario. Uh, we have uh, the character Daisy, who I guess is essentially like the princess. This is the princess character. 
identifiable as the princess from Mario only because she's named Daisy, which I guess she is maybe in some of the games, like the maybe the Game Boy one or something. I'm not sure. And because they say she's a princess, but she never like looks like the princess from the games and she never like flies like in yeah. Super Mario 2. So I, I don't know what else would tie her to that. Yeah, that's right. Luigi, I, I don't know if he double jumps. He kind of double jumps, I guess. But I don't think Daisy ever flies. They all do spend a lot of time digging up turnips. <laughs> no, they <Yeah>. don't. <laughs> all right. So Daisy's played by Samantha Mathis, born 1970, former child actor. She appeared in 1990's Pump Up the Volume. She was a voice actor on Fern Gully. Then Mario happened. Uh, not a lot of video game movies after that, but <laughs> more traditional dramas. She pops up in 1996's Broken Arrow. Uh, a 1999 episode of The Outer Limits, and she was uh, in the cast of American Psycho in 2000. She was also in 2004's The Punisher and had a role on uh, the TV series The Strain. Of note in my household, at least, when Rachel saw the cast of this movie, she was like, oh, it's Amy. And that's because mm -hmm. Samantha Mathis plays the adult version of the youngest sister, Amy. I think the younger version is uh, Kirsten Dunst. In the 1994 film adaptation of Little Women, directed by Gillian Armstrong, which is a, a beloved film in our house, it's, it's long oh. been one of her favorites. Oh, very nice. Well, um, I can't say much about Samantha Mathis in this film other than it's probably not the best representation of what she was capable of. Uh, you know, her scenes, to me anyway, they felt at times they feel either green or disconnected. And it may not even be anything that's a reflection on her experience level at the time. You know, it's just like we said, this this is not the production that perhaps one should use to judge everyone's uh, acting abilities. Uh, yeah, it seems like she's kind of going through the motions, but most of the actors are. I think the only one who's not just going through the motions is... Uh, is Dennis Hopper, which, you know, he, he would kind of give you something even when he was just collecting a paycheck. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the goons. Uh, first of all, we have Fisher Stevens playing Iggy. Uh, this is one of Koopa's goons, born 1963, a, a fine actor of stage, screen, and TV who is unfortunately best remembered by many for the ill-conceived role of the roboticist Ben on Short Circuit 1 and 2. He was also in 1995's Hackers, but he's really been in some solid stuff over the last 10 years, including 2014's The Grand Budapest Hotel, 2016's Hail Caesar, uh, 2016's The Night Of on HBO, and also the HBO series Secession. But he's just one of two goons. These are the Koopa cousins, as we, we later learn. Uh, the other one is Spike, played by Richard Edson, born 1954. This is a character actor with a, he has a great sort of lupine look, a kind of lean and hungry look. Uh, best known to many out there is the garage attendant in 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was also in such films as 86's Howard the Duck, 89's Do the Right Thing, an episode of the TV series Monsters, oh, and then Rob Zombie's 2019 film Three from Hell. All right, we have another villain to sort of round out our, our, our villain cast here, and that's the character Lena, who I don't, to my knowledge, is not based on anything from the actual video games. But uh, Lena is played by uh, the terrific Fiona Shaw, born 1958, a tremendous Irish uh, film and theater actor, probably best known to most out there as Aunt Dursley um, on the Harry Potter films. But she's far more than that. Uh, some of her older credits include 1989's My Left Foot. Uh, she was one of the stars of that film. She was in uh, 1990's Mountains of the Moon, which is a, a film about Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton. 
After Mario, you can look to such uh, films of hers as Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy from 97, that ill-conceived 1998 Avengers movie. Uh, She had a fun witch role on HBO's True Blood, and she has a tremendous role in uh, Star Wars Andor, uh, playing Andor's mother. Uh, So uh, I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks are probably familiar with her from Andor as well. But she's also popped up on some of their big shows like Fleabag and Killing Eve in recent years. Give us Lena. We love Lena. Do we agree? We love Lena. Yeah, yeah. I thought she was great in this. Uh, I mean, she's she's smoking. She's she's very fashionable, and they have her done up as this, uh, you know, kind of vamping villain, which of course is you know very different from from Aunt Dursley. You know, Fiona Shaw had a, had a great deal of range, and uh, I feel like she tends to to eat up her scenes uh, rather nicely. There's there's one scene though where she lunges and puts a knife to a princess's throat, and I legit jumped because it felt real on Shaw's part in a way that nothing else in the movie had felt real up till that point. I was like, ah, she's got a knife. Oh yeah, yeah. She she's great. She's she's a lizard queen, uh, but with a kind of bride of Frankenstein edge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's good. Okay, uh, we get into the smaller roles here. Uh, we're, we're almost done with the, the lineup here. But Mojo Nixon is in this. He plays a character named Ooh. Toad. This is one of the very few screen roles of the rockabilly psychobilly icon Mojo Nixon, born 1957. Probably best known for such songs as "Don Henley Must Die." Don't let him get back together with Glenn Fry. That's the chorus. Um, and he at one point performed that song with Don Henley, but also such songs as You Can't Kill Me, uh, Bring Me the Head of David Geffen, and many more. He's known for having this kind of like wild gonzo persona. If you don't have Mojo Nixon, your store could use some fixing. <laughs> All right, so more on Mojo Nixon in a bit. Um, Lance Hendrickson is in the cast here, as we, we alluded to earlier, I think, uh, playing King Bowser, the deposed King Bowser. So he's not really in this movie. This is more or less just a cameo. And it's kind of a crummy cameo because if you're not looking for him, you might not realize that this is Lance Hendrickson. And he doesn't even have anything interesting to say. He just like pops up and he's like, well, here I am. I, I love plumbers. Yeah, he's like, love those plumbers. And that's it. So, uh, yeah, somehow we've never watched a Lance Hendrickson movie on Weird House Cinema. Uh, so we're, we're not going to get into him here. We'll come back uh, when we watch a proper Lance Hendrickson movie. If you have suggestions for what that might be, write in. But obviously, he's best remembered as the role of, of Bishop the Android in 1986's Aliens. And then finally, the music on this one is the work of Alan Silvestri, born 1950, session guitarist who broke into Hollywood composing in the 70s and went on to score a ton of big movies, including Romance in the Stone in 1984, Back to the Future, all the Back to the Future films, 87's Predator, 95's Judge Dredd, Forrest Gump in 94, uh, and some of those big Marvel Avengers movies as well. He's a two-time Oscar nominee. Nothing wrong with this score at all, but uh, I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Sylvester's done a lot of great stuff. The Back to the Future score is magical. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it yeah. makes the movie, it, it creates the feel. Uh, but I thought the movie, the I, I don't know, I thought the music in the Mario movie was, was kind of trash, uh, except for the George Clinton cover of Walk the Dinosaur, which I don't know, how could a person not love that? Oh, yeah, that that is a great track. A wonderful P-Funk cover of Walk the Dinosaur. Love it. I think it's credited to George Clinton and the Goombas. I don't know if that's actually P-Funk or George Clinton and some other, I I don't know. (laughs) No idea. All right, you ready to talk about the plot? Oh, yeah, let's talk about the plot. 
So I wanted to note the music of the opening credits. The first thing we get is the original Super Mario Brothers theme song from the game, you know, do 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 but there's something different. There's like a jazzy hi-hat beat keeping time with it. And then a sort of minor chord pad fills in. And then the Mario theme gradually fades out and a traditional score comes in. I think there's a sort of eerie flute melody. And that is... Even that musical transition, I think, is emphasizing a theme that will come through in many other design choices about the beginning of the movie. I'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, so first of all, we see like a weird pixelated landscape. Looks like it could be from a Nintendo game. And a voiceover narration begins. And it says, a long, long time ago, the Earth was ruled by dinosaurs. They were big, so not a lot of people went around hassling them. And I immediately thought, why does this sound like a voice from The Simpsons? But I looked up the narrator and I immediately understood why. It's Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson, a bunch of other Springfield characters. I like this choice. I felt like this yeah. instantly grabbed my attention. Yeah. So the narrator goes on. And while this is happening, the pixelated landscape starts to reveal dinosaurs. They're eating leaves and stuff. And the animations are, I'm going to say, not strong. They kind of <laughs> look like something from a $5 educational CD-ROM you bought at CompUSA in the 90s. Yeah, they're kind of, I feel like they're intentionally crunchy. Or I, I, I assume it was intentionally. It's yeah. an intentional act here. So the narration says, actually, no people went around hassling them because there weren't even people yet. Just the first tiny mammals. Basically, life was good. Then uh, then after this, the dinosaurs, they start talking to each other. And the, one of them is chewing on what looks like blonde hair, by the way. Uh, the dinosaur says, you know, it just don't get no better than this. And the other dinosaur says, yeah. And I'm like, why do they have New York accents? I think you're about to find out. That's right. So we cut back to the pixelated landscape. It says Brooklyn 65 million years ago. Then uh, the, the narrator says, then something happened. A giant meteorite struck the earth. Goodbye, dinosaurs. And we see the impact. And the narrator says, but what if the dinosaurs weren't all destroyed? And now we start zooming through a bunch of abstract, grainy CGI stuff. And all I could think is, you know, everybody knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. But what this movie presupposes is maybe he didn't. <laughs> so the narrator says, what if the impact of that meteorite created a parallel dimension where the dinosaurs continue to thrive and evolve into intelligent, vicious, aggressive beings just like us? And hey. What if they found a way back? And then we are slammed with the title Super Mario Brothers. I want to talk about the title design because I feel like it's kind of getting at the same thing that music transition was a minute ago. Mm -hmm. What is the title suggesting with this like gleaming gray metal surface and the industrial rivet font? I think the implication is like, oh, you played this as a video game, but playtime is over. <laughs> Mario's not just an innocent fantasy anymore. Mario's in the real world now, where things are made of metal and held together by rivets, and there is smog and acid rain and crime, and probably a guy with a mohawk carrying a boombox. Let's see what happens. I also think that the, the title card here for Mario Brothers... It looks like a like it's from a commercial for a hard hitting law firm that is ready to fight for you. Yeah, with optional yeah, Robert Vaughn. Yeah, Robert Vaughn. Yeah, it's time to get tough, Mario. Tough Mario and Mario fighting for you. 
<laughs> uh, anyway, so it says uh, cut to Brooklyn 20 years ago. So we're going to get more prologue. Uh, it's like a rainy night. Woman's running around. She leaves a strange metallic capsule on the steps of a convent. The lady runs away. She climbs down into a manhole, I guess, into the sewer. Um, she uh, she wanders off into some kind of like tunnel, and then she bumps into Dennis Hopper. There he is. He's lurking mm-hmm. in the shadows, wearing a military uniform that has so many medals. It, I guess it's the dictator look, or you know, he looks like Patton or something. And he says, where is the rock? And she screams and runs away. And then the tunnel seemingly collapses. Uh, Back at the convent, uh, the nuns open up the capsule. There is apparently an egg inside. The egg hatches and then out comes a human baby. Yeah. All right. Uh, And then there is a weird jagged crystal left with the egg. One of the nuns holds it up significantly. This means something. Uh, and then we cut to another setting. It is Brooklyn now. I see buildings. I see traffic. I see a billboard ad for Newports. That seems telling about what kind of movie this is going to be. Again, presumably this is for children, but one of the first things we see in the modern world is a cigarette ad. Yeah. So we meet our heroes, uh, Mario, played by Bob Hoskins, and Luigi, played by John Leguizamo. They're plumbers. Uh, Rob, would you say they are down on their luck, plumbers? Yeah, yeah. They seem, they, they're they talking about how they're like three bills behind on uh, on paying their rent. They're, they're having a tough time, and they're having a tough time just getting anybody to hire them. A major source of their financial woes seems to be that Luigi is addicted to paranormal fringe and conspiracy media. So he's like spending their last dime to buy copies of some weekly world news type publication with articles about a scientist that turns people's brains into cheese. Uh, Also in Luigi's media diet, he's he's watching a TV show called Miraculous World. Is this supposed to be in search of? I think so. Yeah, definite in search of vibes here. Um, he's, so he's like watching a segment. He's like, wow, this guy just found out he was in another dimension. So the, there are a bunch of conflicts between the characters uh, established. The differences are that Mario takes their dire financial situation seriously and Luigi does not seem to worry too much. Uh, also uh, conflicts between them. Mario does not believe in parallel dimensions and the scientist who turns people's brains into cheese. And Luigi says, but Mario, you got to believe in something. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Uh, Mario is generally just more stressed out and serious and Luigi's kind of happy go lucky. Yeah, it makes sense. He's got more spring in his step. He can double jump. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they have some arguing and banter in traffic while they're driving to a job. I think they're literally just shown like driving over garbage cans. Absolutely reckless, dangerous mm-hmm. behavior. Uh, once they get to the job site, a rival plumbing company called Scapelli has taken the job. Now, what's the deal with Scapelli? Scapelli is not a blue-collar plumber like Mario and Luigi. He's a rich bigwig who rides around in a limousine. And when I saw him come out, I, I looked up the actor and I was like, oh, that's Carlo Rizzi from The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, um, it, it was Barzini. Uh, I guess this means he is implied to be a mobster in addition to running a plumbing company. Oh, yeah, because it's not long before we get a scene where he like blatantly um, threatens um, our heroine and says, like, it'd be a shame if you were to uh, disappear on the streets like these other young women have been disappearing. Super Mario Brothers, the movie, children. Um, (laughs) 
So from here, we move on to a sort of news segment that I don't know the what's going on with the narrative here. Like there's no established character watching the news. It's just suddenly a news segment. And there's a construction site that has been controversially shut down by university students who are digging for dinosaur bones. And there's conflict between Scapelli, who wants the site open for business, and Daisy, this character who comes out, and she is the head paleontologist at the dig site. She wants to keep the dig going in the name of science. And this is when Scapelli threatens her. He's like, a lot of girls been going missing in Brooklyn lately, which implies that he's responsible for that. But we find out he's not. It's dinosaurs kidnapping girls from Brooklyn. Yeah. But still, one of the many one of the many points in the film where it's like, this is this is for kids. This seems a little a little hard edged. Yeah. So uh, later we see a duo of twitchy guys dressed like they're from the movie Hackers and they're Mm -hmm. tailing Daisy around. This is Fisher Stevens and Richard Edson uh, playing Iggy and Spike. And it's first it's like maybe these guys are not from around here because Spike comes back to the car with a couple of hot dogs and he's like, they said it was dog meat. And then they throw away the buns and they eat the hot dogs and they identify Daisy from a description, which is that uh, she has uh, two legs, one head and two arms. But so do they. Well, it's a recurring joke that they're lizards and they they can't tell mammals apart. Uh, so we'll you know come back to that. I will say uh, one other thing about Fisher Stevens' character in this: if there's someone in your life uh, that uh, that is thinking about growing sideburns and you don't <laughs> want them to grow sideburns, show them a picture of Fisher Stevens from this film, and I think that's going to take care of all your problems. Uh, yeah, so the Koopa goons here try to chase Daisy, but they are foiled by running face first into plate glass. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, Daisy and Luigi run into each other at a payphone. They have a meet cute and Luigi is just instantly in love. He's mm-hmm. adorably awkward. He's like, wow, I haven't heard the name Daisy around here before. Or wait, he has heard it because it's also the name of a flower. And uh, Mario and Luigi end up giving Daisy a ride back to the dig site. Luigi asks her out on a date and she agrees. So it's later that night and it's a double date. At an Italian restaurant, they're having a big old mess of spaghetti and meatballs. And I was like, whoa, whoa, who is Mario's date? Uh, Yeah. They're all talking and Daisy has expertise on iridium layers and geological strata. And Mario's date is talking about how not to get tan lines. And it's I, I think it's said that they all rode out to dinner together in the plumbing van. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This is the I want to say we're like 20 minutes into the film at this point. And. And it was a, and you're watching it and you're like, wow, this film has really given children so little to latch on to. Just yeah. so little. It, it's true. So we learn a bit about Daisy's backstory at dinner here. She says she was left at a convent as a baby, uh, raised by nuns, and that she has this weird crystal necklace that uh, was left with her and she still wears it. Though she does not mention that she hatched from an egg. I don't know if anybody ever told her that. Hmm. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. 
During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Now, Spike and Iggy are still following Daisy around, but they get confused and think Mario's date is Daisy, and they throw a bag over her head and kidnap her. Uh, they take mm-hmm. her to another dimension. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Luigi and Daisy, are, they're just having more cute date stuff. They're awkwardly flirting, and they're, they're hitting it off. And the dialogue in these scenes is atrociously unnatural, but the actors are almost charming enough to pull it off, almost. Yeah. Uh, They end up going back to the dig site and then they go down into the underground tunnel and Daisy shows Luigi some of the dinosaur bones they have unearthed. And she says, um, so they're looking at a dinosaur. It's got big reptilian fangs, but she says it has opposable thumbs. And she says, it's almost as if he was a monster trying to be a human being. It's beautiful. And then Luigi's like, you're beautiful. And then they kiss. Okay. Yeah, just your 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 kiss kissing scene in the sewer. Uh, but they're interrupted because Scapelli's sabotage plumbers that like his sapper team is there, mm-hmm. and they have just sabotaged the dig site. So uh, they like blow up some pipes or something, and everything's flooding. Mario Brothers come to the rescue. There's an action packed plumbing scene until Daisy is kidnapped by the Koopa Brothers. And Mario and Luigi, they're chasing. They're like, oh, we got to get her back. They discover that she has been taken through some sort of portal, a wall of solid rock that is also a dimensional rift. Luigi jumps through it. Mario reluctantly follows because he's afraid of heights. They tumble through a bunch of hideous CGI before popping out on the other side unharmed. Yeah, so the CGI is definitely hideous, especially when they're sticking their faces through it. There's a real help me, I am in hell uh, vibe to this. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. I also have to comment on the the plumbing sequence because yeah that that was amazing because it's it's almost like there was a note at some point from the producers and they're like aren't Mario and Luigi plumbers shouldn't we have a scene where they're actually plumbing like this is clearly the appeal of the character more to young plumbing. people yeah we need more plumbing and they're like well this that's right this just, just doesn't work from a character creation standpoint if we don't see them plumbing. Well, they have a lot more plumbing later. They have plumbing in, like, the third act. Yeah, like, this is the the point that at least some of the writers who worked on the script were like, got to get that plumbing in there. So they pop out in a kind of crowded subway station, but it's a weird crowded subway station. Uh, There is this fibrous gunk hanging all over the place. We will later learn this is the fungus. 
And it's hard to describe the vibe of this place. It is sort of it has elements of country western, but also heavy metal and cyberpunk. Um, it's like they're outdoors, but it seems indoors. It's constantly nighttime. There are neon lights everywhere. I was thinking it's a little bit Vegas Strip, a little bit Biff World, a little bit Blade Runner. Uh, I don't know. And of course, there's a big sign that says vote for Koopa. So at least they get to vote here. I think all of these sequences were filmed in a, like a giant industrial space in North Carolina. <laughs> Wait, literally? L- literally, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. So for the rest of the film, we're somewhere in North Carolina in a big, like, former factory or something or warehouse. So a lot of the attempted humor in this movie doesn't work, but there are a few moments here on the streets when they first arrive in, uh, I forget what this place is called, Koopa World or whatever, uh, that that are actually kind of funny. There was one part I laughed at, where, like, so there are lizards everywhere because this is, you know, dino Manhattan sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lizards fighting in the streets and there are people with sort of various reptilian features. And then there's a lady pushing a big egg in a stroller. And I did laugh at that. That was good. I like the, the, how we start seeing some dinosaur mutants in there, uh, but not that many. It's kind of the reverse of sometimes, you know, you have like your Star Wars cantina scene mm-hmm. and you have a lot of great aliens and then you have a few humans in the background just to sort of fill things out. We get the reverse here. It's mostly humans that are presumed to be uh, evolved reptiles and then also some reptile mutants thrown in, but only like one or two. Another funny gag here. There's a brief glimpse of a marquee outside a grindhouse theater, and it's showing a movie called I Was a Teenage Mammal. Yep. Triple X, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) For kids. For the kids. Yeah, exactly. And Mario and Luigi just keep saying, where are we? This is crazy. And they're making jokes about how Manhattan got really bad since we were last here. Mm -hmm. So finally, we meet the villain. And again, this is Koopa, played by Dennis Hopper. My God, what would you call his hairstyle? I guess it's kind of like Dino Rose. Um, yeah. Something to really allow them to lean into the reptilian vibe that they've cultivated for him. And it's, it's one of several extreme hairstyles that we see in the movie. It's like he has blonde hair, but yeah, it's styled up into the kind of rose of like uh, the things on an alligator's back. Yeah. And he's hanging out with his creepy lady friend, Lena. Ooh, I mean, maybe we should go a little bit deeper on what's going on with Lena here. She's like Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher, but with the Mm -hmm. charm turned down to zero and the body temperature dial set to room. Uh, There is a scene later where she's being irritable and Koopa says, looks like someone woke up on the wrong side of the nest this morning. (laughs) That must be an Ed Solomon line, that one. Oh, yeah. 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 But (laughs) anyway, uh, I like Fiona Shaw in this. Uh, Again, this is not a character that comes from the games as far as I know. Uh, This is a creation just for 93's Mario. But uh, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Anytime Lena is on uh, uh, on screen, I'm, I'm interested in what she's doing. Yes. Love Lena. Uh, so Dennis Hopper gives a speech where, like, while he's doing this, he's dip. Did you understand? He's like dipping his hands in hot wax and making wax gloves for himself. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Something I he's talking about the the dangers of fungi. So I thought maybe it was some sort of decontamination thing. I don't know. So he says, look at this place. Pathetic. It gets worse every day. The humans on the other side have a world full of resources ready for the taking. Imagine an endless supply of food, clean air, water. And what are we stuck with? This pit hole. Germs everywhere. 
fungus. 65 million years we've been exiled here after that meteorite struck while mammals roam free in the other dimension. Well, not for long. So he lays out his whole plot right here in this first scene. Uh, he says, finally, when he gets hold of the Princess Daisy and the rock, he'll be able to finally merge our world with theirs and get rid of the mammals. So Spike and Iggy show up to report that they have the princess, but they forgot to get the rock. And uh, Koopa needs the rock, too, or he can't merge the dimensions. And they say, oh, well, a couple of plumbers took it. And so Koopa puts out an APB on all plumbers. Now, meanwhile, back with Mario and Luigi, there was another, I thought, actually intentionally funny scene that that works uh, where they get mugged by a little old lady. <laughs> yeah. like uh, this little old lady who's like, oh, hello, gentlemen. You know, this is a dangerous neighborhood. Are you two armed? And they're like, what? No. And then she pulls out like a laser gun. And she's like, give me all your Koopa coins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this felt like something out of the old, uh, like a, out of an old Judge Dredd comic book. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Judge Dredd comic books, they had a pretty wacky vibe. For instance, in the comics, Judge Dredd had an elderly cleaning lady named Maria who spoke with an exaggerated Italian accent. And this was not a one-off character. <laughs> I like you included a panel here. Maya Judge. <laughs> yeah, you come back to your old Maria. Yeah. Oh, but also after this, it's like a fight breaks out in this scene and another lady, not the little old lady who tried to rob them, a different lady in a red dress with Legion of Doom spikes wearing mm -hmm. pneumatic rocket boots ends up stealing the meteorite shard from them. She'll come back. Uh, then also, I guess a few minutes later, the Koopa police uh, come and arrest Mojo Nixon for <laughs> standing on the sidewalk singing a satirical song about King Koopa. Yeah. And uh, Mojo Nixon's character Toad here has just an extreme hairstyle. It is just something else. It's like a spiral. It's good. It, and by the way, Mario, like this movie takes a stand. Mario takes great offense as, as, as an avid defender of free speech. Mario angrily insists that you cannot arrest a guy for singing a song. And then the police notice that Mario is a plumber and they arrest him, too. They arrest him and Luigi and Luigi protests that he's not a plumber, just an apprentice. Yeah. And Mojo Nixon's not even doing any, any obscene songs here. I mean, depending where you stand on obscenity laws, I guess a case could be made uh, with some tracks, but he's just criticizing the, the, the Koopa government here. Now, they get in a police car and they take him to the police station, but I we should stop to mention the cars in this movie for a second. Every car in the Koopa world is Mad Maxified. They have engines on the outside. They have all kinds of spikes and doodads poking out all over the place. And then they've also got, they're all constantly shooting sparks out of their roofs. I've seen a lot of movies with Mad Max cars in them, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, some are good, some are uh, bad. Some, you, you see a lot of work and some that seem a little more slapped together. A lot of work went into these and they're really ugly. Hideous. Yeah. Now, there was another thing that I thought, I don't know, this was like almost funny. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but there is an atmosphere of total chaos at the police station. Like while Mario and Luigi are being booked uh, and they're doing they're doing the bid about how they're both named Mario. That's their mm -hmm. last name. So it's Mario, Mario, Luigi, Mario. But while this is going on, the booking officer is getting his back rubbed with the spike of a high heel on a woman's yeah. foot, which is attached to a leg that is jutting in from off screen at an impossible angle. And meanwhile, there is just constantly glass shattering everywhere and people jumping around. 
Yeah, like this really feels, this is one of those things that especially felt like late 80s, early 90s. You know, it feels very MTV. Mm -hmm. It feels very in line with the the director's sensibilities. Uh, But Mario and Luigi get defungused at jail. They go through a defungusing process. And then they go into lockup where Mojo Nixon gives them some exposition. He explains history to them. He's like, okay, you're in a parallel dimension. By the way, I don't know how he knows all this. But he's like, you're in a parallel dimension that was split off by the KPG impact. Uh, some Somehow you came over here from the mammal dimension into this one. Uh, oh, and by the way, he says that the fungus that is choking the city, he, he says it's that old king, I guess the guy who used to be in charge here. Uh, Mojo Nixon says he's been de-evolved. So Koopa comes in, he's trying to find out where the meteorite piece is, uh, and he does this ploy where he pretends to be their lawyer. That didn't really work out. So they go into the uh, the de-evolution chamber. Uh, now, this is actually a major theme in the film that is, I don't, I don't know how this theme became so big in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Does this have anything to do with the games in any way you're aware of? Well, just that... Mario gets big, and then if he gets injured, he becomes small again, right? He loses his powers, and I guess you could say he's de-evolving to some extent. So, yeah, it's a machine with, like, a chair, and then the chair, you sit in it, you get strapped down, and it sticks your head up in a big hole that zaps you with blue light until you come out having been changed. And Koopa gives a Bond villain speech about how the machine works. He says, normally, evolution is an upward process. Things evolve to get smarter, achieve higher forms. This machine does the opposite, reducing you to a primordial state. And I hate to be pedantic here, but we got it. Koopa, that is a classic rookie mistake about evolution. Evolution does not mean <laughs> things get higher or better. It just means lineages of organisms adapt to environmental pressures. So they adapt to proliferate in their present environment. Uh, there's no up in evolution. But... Um, Unfortunately, the cringe science does not stop there because uh, Mario gets mad at Koopa and he says, what single celled organism did you evolve from? And Koopa says, Tyrannosaurus Rex, the Lizard King. Thank you very much, which I would argue has more than one cell. I did like that Dennis Hopper makes the bold choice to act this scene out with his arms in a T-Rex pose. I don't know if you noticed that or you have them kind of like like little T-Rex arms. <laughs> I yeah, also yeah. have have to point out that the um the the devo chamber here major set piece in the film and they made a toy play set of this um <laughs> the, where you like strap in and out. it's kind of like the slime pit i guess from masters of the universe uh, i can't tell from the grainy image i found of the box how it was supposed to work uh, and i would ask listeners out there hey if you had this toy what was it like but let's not kid ourselves nobody had this toy they had a toy, a mass-produced toy set of the de-evolution chamber. <laughs> I refuse to believe any child actually had this toy. But so what does it actually do in the movie? Yeah, it, it, like we see it demonstrated on poor Mojo Nixon. He gets his head stuck in it and it transforms his Mojo Nixon head into like a tiny reptilian head. Yeah, some great CGI there as well as his face goes... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're told that this is a Goomba, but that's funny because that's not what the Goombas are in the games. The ga- In the games, they're like ambulatory mushrooms, not like people with large bodies and tiny, creepy reptile heads. Yeah, yeah, they're stitching a lot of stuff together here. Now, I will say I remember that the transformation of people into Goombas 
in this movie was an element that I found unsettling when I saw it as a kid. Something seemed kind of perverse and wrong about it. It re- it didn't feel good. Yeah, he's he's not only turning them into creatures, he's turning them into creatures that act and look stupid. So it yeah. feels like more of a crime. There's a scene later where Cooper reveals his like grand master plan is to uh, devo all of the humans in the mammal dimension and turn them into monkeys. <laughs> By the way, this whole merging of the of the dimensions, merging of the planes, I don't know if this is, surely this is not the first work of fiction to deal with this possibility, but this I do know that this becomes a major plot point in the later Mortal Kombat games. So I, uh, one has to wonder, did they, did they get that from the Super Mario Brothers movie, or is there some other key bit of, like, warring dimension media that I'm just not thinking of? Hmm. Well, anyway, so they send Toad off to join the other Goombas. Mario and Luigi, they sort of uh, overpower their captors. They beat up the guards. They throw Koopa into the de-evolution machine. So mm-hmm. you're thinking, like, oh, is the movie about to be over? Um, but no, Luigi, they, they crank the dial to the Jurassic setting, but he's like only in there for a second sort of pokes his head in and then he falls back out. But when he comes back out, he has these like morphing vertical pupils that are fading in and out. Yeah. It's one of the the first of several scenes where Koopa glitches dinosaur, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. There's a big action scene where they're like fighting Goombas with flamethrowers and they they eventually commandeer a car, a police car, and get out of there. Um, And the car chase ends with them going through a tunnel and getting spit out in some kind of desert. Um, After this, there is a scene where Koopa is having a mud bath with Lena. (laughs) Yeah, this is a pretty solid scene. Like the set, I don't know about the scene, but the set looks really dope. Okay. And there's something about having your villain in the mud bath. It reminded me of the we have a mud bath scene in 2021's Dune with uh, uh, the the Baron uh, in there yes. as he's addressing his underlings. So uh, similar connection there. I don't know if uh, um, if uh, Denis Villeneuve was uh, was looking at this when he was um, putting together his his dreams for his Dune adaptation. Or not. Surely, surely it was inspired by the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> uh, Dennis Hopper has a line. This almost felt ad-libbed. He says, you know what I love about mud? It's clean and it's dirty at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kids movie. Kids movie. <laughs> oh, uh, so meanwhile, remember Daisy? Remember the paleontologist? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she's been hanging out with all of the women from the mammal dimension that I guess were all except her erroneously brought here by Iggy and Spike because they thought all of them were her. But now they're all just still here and they're like hanging out stuck in this room. And uh, Mario's date from Meatball Night is here. Mm, nice. And Lena shows up in the room to uh, to extract Princess Daisy from the room of the, the Mammal Dimension women. And Lena dresses her up in a purple gown and jewelry and gives some exposition. She says that Daisy is the daughter of the uh, former queen of this world who stole the rock, that's what they're calling this like little shard, uh, smuggled the baby into the mammal dimension and then died. And uh, Daisy wants to know about her father. Is he still living? And Lena says, depends on what you mean by living. And later she asks Koopa about him. Koopa says, oh, he's around. (laughs) Again, we will find a spoiler. We will find out that all of the fungus that's just all over everything and every a building and room in this world is the former king. He's he, he I guess he got really big. Yeah. Which in and of itself 
It's grotesquely realized in the film, but it's it's kind of a neat idea. This idea that the deposed king was too powerful to really go away, and that he's like he's everywhere. I mean, there's something kind of potent about that. You could imagine mm. this being used to great effect in a in a different uh, work of fiction. So there's a new scene where I think Koopa is punishing Spike and Iggy for failing many times, and uh, Spike gets sent into the Devo machine. But then mm-hmm. instead of being made to Devo, he is made to Evo. They so they set the dial to quote advanced. Yeah, they pop his head in. He comes out with a vastly improved vocabulary, and he starts doing math problems. Uh, and then they do this to the other guy as well. So now they are both smart. But in this movie, smart just means listing a lot of synonyms for a word somebody just said. Yeah, yeah, they just book smart. They don't actually do anything smart uh, <laughs> in the film. Uh, they just suddenly have a different vocabulary. Though I think it does change their politics. Now they start sort of mm. revolting against King Cooper. Remember, they're like, you're a fascist. That's right, that's right. They just have very little ability to do anything about it because... They're not plumbers. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh, somewhere in here, there's a scene where Daisy meets Yoshi. I remember. Oh, yeah. Yoshi is one of the highlights of the film. Yes. Yeah, so there's a tiny theropod dinosaur. Uh, definitely not as cute as Yoshi in the games. Uh, but he's sort of, you know, a, a dog-sized dinosaur. And uh, Daisy's getting to know him. And Koopa enters the scene and says, Yoshi is a pet of the royal family. And Daisy is, of course, amazed because here's a dinosaur. She's a paleontologist. She's always studied them but never seen one alive, of course. Yeah, yeah. So this was something I remember from the trailers and the promotional materials when I was a kid. And I was like, yes, this this is Yoshi. This is great. This, I mean, who doesn't want to see this movie with a with a cute dinosaur that's your friend sure but this scene really ends up taking a turn so first of all there's more exposition there's a lot of just explaining uh koopa explains that their dimension well he doesn't explain this it like is demonstrated with a prop that their world is arrakis pretty much like the planet (laughs) has one big city and the rest of the planet is an endless desert so koopa spins the globe around and there's only one landmark the city the rest is just flat desert so like if there's only one landmark on your planet why would you have a globe i mean maybe it's not nothing out there (laughs) maybe there's some (laughs) landmarks yeah uh so koopa explains to her also She's one of them, you know, she she's descended from dinosaurs, not mammals. And we will in later scenes see her bonding and making friends with Yoshi, I guess, not just because she's interested in dinosaurs, but because she is one. Then the scene takes a horrible turn and Koopa gets really creepy. He does like a CGI snake tongue thing at Daisy and tries to Mm -hmm. kiss her. It, It is absolutely disgusting. And in a way... I guess hats off to Dennis Hopper, because I assume they probably told him, hey, okay, time to be the king of creeps, and he accomplishes it. (laughs) But I don't know. I do not understand how anybody involved thought this scene was appropriate in a movie for little kids. Yeah, because he's he's playing an abusive, lecherous, totalitarian, but in ways that break through the sort of simplified cartoon version of those attributes. Yeah, it's just gross. And so, like, is this a kid's movie? And then to add more to that, so Daisy rejects him. And then Koopa Koopa sends her away with Goombas, and he kicks Yoshi. He kicks Uh, Yoshi. So cruelty to animals also. Yeah. I don't really blame Hopper here because I think he's probably doing what they told him to do and create this awful, detestable villain. But this the tone is just miles off the mark for what this movie is presumably supposed to be. Absolutely, yeah.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Now, of course... Where are Mario and Luigi at this point? They've been cast out into the desert and with the Fremen, I assume? Yeah, that's right. Yes. After having given their water, um, they're, I don't know. Yeah. So they're out in the desert wandering around. They're arguing with each other. At some point, they end up crossing paths with Iggy and Spike after Iggy and Spike crash their dune buggy in a mud pit. Mm-hmm. And then they fill Mario and Luigi in on the exposition that the audience already knows, all the stuff about the world, Koopa needs the shard to merge the dimensions, etc. This movie spends a lot of time going over stuff that's already been covered. Character is just telling exposition to characters of things the audience already knows, sometimes like four or five iterations of the same information. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is just like it's kind of a clunky plot. And so they felt like they really needed to hammer it home. Uh, I don't know. Like maybe if they had one less exposition sequence, I wouldn't have as clear of of an idea um, about what's going on. But they agree to work together. They say like Spike and Iggy can have the shard if they help Mario and Luigi rescue Daisy. So they make their way back to the city by knocking out some Koopa cops uh, at a dump with plumbing equipment and they steal a garbage truck. (laughs) And then they go to a nightclub to find the lady who stole the meteorite shard. And once again, is this movie supposed to be for kids? This club scene really seemed way too adult. Like there's just leather and butts everywhere it's it's a weird vibe yeah there's a lot of underwear in this uh, in this scene and uh, i kept expecting the lady with three breasts from total recall to show up you know yeah. it's like that kind of uh, a vibe it is exactly that kind of uh, setting yeah so mario's plan to get the meteorite shard is to charm the lady who beat them up and stole it earlier turns out her name is bertha And turns out it it sort of works. Like he goes up and he's like, hello, beautiful. And she punches him at first, but then she dances with him. Then he gets the shard back. Then uh, then a George Clinton cover of Walk the Dinosaur starts playing. Then Goombas arrive, commanded by Lena. 
And then Lena gets hold of the shard, but Mario and Luigi manage to escape the Goombas with the help of Bertha, who is very strong and who is now in love with Mario. I think she she like kisses him and calls him sugar buns or something. <laughs> and then she gives them pneumatic rocket boots, which she calls stompers. And I think here is the first time we see the Super Mario Brothers actually gaining some of their powers from the game because now they can jump because they have the boots from yeah. Bertha. Now they can do again. This is something that they were like, well, they've got to jump. They've got to jump. They've got to do plumbing and they have to jump. So there's another chase. They escape. Um, there is a scene where the where we see Koopa taunting a big hunk of fungus hanging over an empty throne. Uh, and again, we will find out, oh, this is the king. This is Daisy's father, the king. Uh, and then Koopa goes and he orders a pizza on a video phone. He mm-hmm. wants a Koopa special with pterodactyl tail, dino, lizard, hold the mammal, no worms, and spicy. Uh, so the Marios, after this, they sneak into Koopa Tower by doing plumbing. Like uh, they, mm-hmm. they like twist some some bolts and stuff on pipes in order to turn off the heat so the tower turns cold. And this is not good for the dinosaurs. Uh, they also find the outfits of their actual colors from the game. They just like find uh, red overalls for Mario and green for Luigi. I think it's some somewhere around here that Lena starts turning on Koopa. Like, she starts to get jealous of his desire for Daisy. So she's like, well, I'm going to take the shard and I'll merge the worlds without him. And this is great because, like I say, I'm, re- I'm here for Lena. I'm, I'm ready to support Lena right. and her, her coup against Koopa. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's see if she can pull it off. Yeah, so he tries to go to Daisy's room and kill her, but that doesn't work because Yoshi intervenes. Yoshi bites Lena and Daisy escapes. Oh, and meanwhile, uh, Daisy has been making friends not just with Yoshi, but with the Mojo Nixon Goomba. They're, they're, they're friends now. I guess he's like a nice one. Yeah, they let him keep the harmonica that he played in life. Uh-huh. And so it's always <laughs> around his neck to identify uh, which one he is. That's right. And it tur- uh, another thing, the Mario Brothers somehow discovered that Goombas like to dance. So they like get them swaying back and forth to music <laughs> in order to evade them while they're trying to sneak around through some elevator shafts. Yeah, no, those sequences are those are some great weird scenes that also feel like they're part of a children's movie, you know, like yeah, these yeah. big dumb looking monsters are dancing with each other. And I, I accept it. Uh, so eventually, I guess uh, Daisy meets up with I mean, there's so many characters just like meeting, crossing paths, getting captured, mm-hmm. uncaptured, escaping, blah, blah, blah. It's just there's a lot of plot movement without a lot of significance really changing. But it's like Daisy meets up with Spike and Iggy, who explained to her that her father, the king, was the first victim of Koopa's de-evolution machine. He is the fungus that covers the entire city, as we as we've said. Um, she tries to talk to the fungus father, then she frees Yoshi from his chains, then she just hacks the computer system. <laughs> she starts, like, getting in there. <laughs> I have to, to drive home that the what we see in the throne room of the former king uh, as, a, as fungus is just really disgusting. It looks like the failed results of a, of a telepod experiment from the fly or something. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just a weird kind of slime and flesh gunk. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, but uh, somewhere around here, I guess Mario and Luigi make it into the tower. They reunite with Daisy. They're introduced to the Fungus King. Here somehow Mario gets reminded about his meatball night date, whose name is Daniela. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's her name. Okay. Uh, She's also stuck here in the Koopa world with all of the other women from Brooklyn who were kidnapped. And he's like, oh, yeah, I promised to take her to WrestleMania. That means I've (laughs) got to rescue her. So... So he goes to rescue her. He does it. Uh, and they all he, Mario and all of the ladies from 
uh, mammal world go bobsledding down a giant pipe pursued by Goombas. I think this is another nod to the games, like going down the pipes. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's some kind of Kenny Loggins music playing. Uh, they get spit out in the streets of Koopa Town, where they reunite with Daisy and Luigi. And uh, at some some point in there, Daisy and Luigi were captured, and then they got away again. Uh, I don't know how all that happened. But then there's more action in the streets. Koopa's down there aiming a, a de-evolution gun at them. There are de-evolution guns now, not just the machine with the chair. Uh, so from here, it's sort of action all the way to the end. Uh, there, there is a sequence where Lena is trying to get the, the shard and she gets electrified somehow and gets big hair and then runs down the tunnel to the dimensional rift. Luigi and Daisy also run down there after her. They return the girls from Brooklyn back to Brooklyn. They say, tell everyone in Brooklyn about the invasion of the Goombas that's coming. Um, Lena inserts the shard into the meteorite, but it blasts her into the wall and she becomes a cooked skeleton with, with frizzy hair. <laughs> Luigi and Daisy are like, oh yeah, of course that happened to her because only Daisy has the power to insert or remove the shard. Okay. All right. Yeah. I don't recall that being established before, but maybe I missed it. Yeah. We're leaning a little bit on, uh, the dark crystal at this point, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of just action, like Koopa's trying to shoot Mario and Luigi with fireballs in the street. Uh, There's a big fight. Uh, But when the shard is inserted into the meteorite, everything gets interrupted because uh, they're like their bodies start dissolving. So like Koopa and Mario are in a standoff (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they're turning into pixels and flying away. And Koopa's like, we're merging. (laughs) Oh my god! This this was a part in the movie where I was like, "Oh my goodness, what is happening?" Like I was yeah. just for a minute there, just totally thrown off. I was like, "Are we about to time cop here? They're going to merge together and um, occupy the same mass at the same time?" I don't know, but of course, it's the dimensions. Yeah, yeah. So the merging dissolves Koopa and Mario. It sends them to the mammal dimension, Brooklyn, where they pop out on the the dig site of the Scapelli dig. Uh, we see the uh, dissolving of the World Trade Center, like the towers yeah. dissolve, and somebody comments, those guys will do anything for publicity. Ugh. Yikes. Uh. <laughs> uh, Koopa gets there, and he shoots the de-evolution gun at Scapelli, who turns into a chimpanzee. Once again, humans did not evolve from chimpanzees. Yep, yep. Also, did not evolve from mushrooms. Uh, so. <laughs> also true. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Koopa then says he's going to make a monkey out of Mario. He aims the de-evolution gun at him, but then Mario remembers Luigi earlier said, Hey, we should trust the fungus. So Mario says, trust the fungus. And he holds up a piece of fungus as a human shield or a fungus shield. And the de-evolution gun hits it and it gets bigger. And then Mm -hmm. Daisy and Luigi manage to get the shard out of the meteorite. So Koopa and Mario dissolve back to Arrakis. Uh, And then, uh, hey, all of your friends are back here and let's do a payoff of everything that happened earlier. So uh, remember how the Goombas like to dance? Well, Mojo Nixon Goomba, he starts playing the harmonica and they start dancing. So they're not fighting. And hey, remember Bertha with her rocket boots? Well, she's here with rocket boots. Luigi puts them on and starts zooming around. Hey, remember those Devo guns? Uh, Mario and Luigi get them, and they use them on Koopa to turn him into a Velociraptor. Yeah. Uh, remember? Oh, we've seen 
remember bob bombs from the Mario game, the little like walking mm-hmm. bombs, uh, like from a cartoon. Uh, they keep popping up in the game because the fungus is like trying to hand them to Mario. There was one that was ignited earlier. I skipped over that during the the big action scene in the streets. It walks back over to Koopa, blows up, launches him sky high. He falls back down, roars. He's still dinosaurish. Mario and Luigi they keep shooting him with the de-evolution gun until he turns into primordial ooze and then the people of Koopaville celebrate. I guess they didn't like Koopa, but I th- we were given no indication of that. <laughs> then everybody hugs. Uh the fungus king turns back into Lance Henriksen and says, "I'm back. Love those plumbers." And then we never <laughs> see him again. Daisy uses the shard to magically open the portal, uh, you know, but it's like, oh, but I can't leave. This is my world. You know, I, I haven't even met Lance Henriksen yet. Um, <laughs> so, so the Marios go back to their world. Daisy stays here. And uh, so but then we get a little epilogue. So back home in Brooklyn, the Mario brothers, they're hanging out with um, Daniela. They're eating spaghetti and meatballs. They're watching that Unsolved Mysteries show. And hey, look, look, we're on the show now. There's a segment about the time that we saved this dimension from the ruthless dinosaur dictator. And then they high five about being on TV until Daisy comes to the door. She is wearing scorched, tattered clothing. She's holding a de-evolution gun. She says, I need your help, Mario Brothers. You're never going to believe this. And then Mario says, oh, I believe and that's that's the moral of the movie. Now, when somebody says something, he is no longer skeptical. He just believes it. <laughs> this is a great moment where they're setting up a sequel that absolutely would never happen. But it made me wonder, is, is this the coming of Wart, the villain from the main <laughs> villain from Super Mario Brothers 2 that's like invading the world of dreams or whatever was going on in that game? The second live action Super Mario Brothers movie would, as we said, involve a lot of turnip digging, you know, pulling yes. things up, throwing them. Mm-hmm. Getting on top of blocks, the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's that's the one I actually owned. Uh, that was the one that I, I have the most experience with. Still, never made it to war. Was not good at these games. Whew. Well, that was a marathon. I knew this one was going to go long. And as we said, there's a lot of stuff about this we didn't even get into. There, this is like, I, I really meant it when I said I I think a book length work could be devoted to Super Mario Brothers the movie, what it is and what it means, and why it's so strange. Did you stick around for the post-credit sequence? Is there actually one? There actually is one, yes. Oh, no, um, I didn't. What, it, what is it's it? It's real dumb. It's where you have a couple of uh, representatives of a Japanese video game company, presumably Nintendo, or maybe they even say they're from Nintendo, and they're, they show up and they're like, we're here, we hear, we've heard about your adventures, and we would love to turn them into a video game. We think audiences would love this. And then it's revealed it's not Mario and Luigi they're talking to, it's the Koopa cousins. And they... And they uh, they uh, they go back and forth about what the game might be called, and there's some like you know bad humor there. But luckily, it only lasts a few seconds, and that's it. I totally missed it. But so they're living in our dimension now. I think so. Yes. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Unless they are now splinter dimensions, I don't know. They're if you if you think too long and hard about this movie, there uh, you know a lot of a lot of possibilities emerge. Uh, possibilities that, that could have been explored in various ways in uh, the the sequel that you, I guess, can only view in an alternate dimension. Okay, we've got to end it there. This has been ridiculously long. All right, we shall end it there. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Oh, uh, especially if you have experiences with the release 
of this movie? Did you see it in a theater? Uh, what was your level of excitement for it as a, like a video game player? Um, I don't even, I, I, like I say, I refuse to believe anybody owned any of these toys, but if you did write in, we'd love to hear from you. You might need to include photographic evidence though, to convince me. Um, and yeah, we'll be back next week on Weird House Cinema. We're primarily a science podcast in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film. But as we, if you've seen in this episode, we're still not going to let particularly bad science takes go by <laughs> without some comment. Huge thanks to our audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.